it's a terrible way to describe it, but the phrase that always pops into my head when on those days when writing's really hard is dragging a bag of cats up a hill. <laughs> Welcome to Writes for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, it's Pam here, and I thought to start off this week's episode of Rights for Women, I'd just pop in with a little personal writing update and let you know what I've been up to. So what have I been up to? I've been doing a lot of editing recently on my manuscript, Because You're Mine, which is, I know this is a story you have been hearing for some time, but it is actually coming to an end. It's had a couple of beta readers and I've acted on that feedback and a revision over the last month or five weeks or so. And it's currently out with some other very trusted beta readers, some very good writing friends of mine who are going to have a look at it and let me know their thoughts on this version. And then hopefully it will be ready very soon to send off to my agent and off to hopefully submitting to a publisher. That has been a great relief to actually get that off my plate. Uh, I feel like this has been a really major revision in terms of some tweaking that I've done to the storyline that has that domino effect when you change one thing, like a major thing at the beginning, and then you have to go back and change a whole lot of other things, the little earthquake ripples that that happen when you change a plot event. So it's been really good to get that done. This one's been a really long one for me. I've been working on it for some time and a number of years actually, and I'm really at the end of my tether with it now. So I'm really ready to move on to something else. I did have a thought yesterday that it's actually been 10 years this year in December since my first book, Blackwattle Lake, was published. And I'm just having a little thought around some sort of little anniversary special I might do with Blackwattle Lake, but I'm going to keep that under my hat. Of course, that one is in the rural fiction genre. It's rural fiction with romantic elements. It is women's fiction. It's just women's fiction set in the country. And that's where I started. Yeah, I've got a little plan in mind with something that I might actually do with that later in the year, but I will keep you posted on that as that plan evolves. I'm also doing uh, some mentoring. I've got a few mentoring uh, clients at the moment and I'm really enjoying reading their work. And with flood damage and things like that that have happened, there have been a few spanners in the works there and, of course, the horrible state of the world. But thank goodness for books and reading and writing because they're great escapes, aren't they? And they allow us to just hopefully for a little while uh, switch the news off and, and dive into another world that is at the moment, probably a lot more pleasant than the one that we've been living in. That said, I am enjoying doing the mentoring and I'm pretty full up at the moment, but I will have mentoring spots available later in the year. Watch out for notices about that on my Instagram and Facebook page. I'm also, of course, still teaching for the Australian Writers' Centre. I'm really enjoying teaching their Write Your Novel course, which runs over a year. And next week, I'm starting a novel writing essentials course for them. And I also have a couple of courses planned of my own. I'm actually 
going to be putting a couple of on-demand courses up on my website in the next few months and hoping that they will be helpful to people out there who are looking for just a little bit of extra guidance with some aspects of their writing. These are courses that I have taught at workshops before and have always been well received. So I'm looking at ways that I can just get them up on the website and that people can then you know, download the course and work through them at their own. If you're watching this on video, you'll see that I'm actually sitting in my study in the house, which is quite unusual. I'm usually recording in Virginia, my vintage van, which I love. But of course, it's been very wet lately. So even getting over to Virginia has been quite the challenge. And hallelujah, my husband has actually gone to work in the office. So I'm just reclaiming this space for just a little while and enjoying sitting here, looking at all my my books on my gorgeous shelves and uh, very happy to be surrounded by them. There are fantastic episodes coming up on the podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed what's been happening on the podcast to date with all the, the authors that we've had. This episode today is with Eliza Henry-Jones, which I'll talk about in a little minute. But coming up on the podcast, we also have uh, some more guest hosting, which has been a huge help for me with just taking some of that weight off my shoulders with getting the podcast out every week. Shout out to Maya Linnell, who has done the interview a few weeks ago with debut author Lizzie Pook. And we've got coming up Meredith Jaffe, who's going to be chatting to Genevieve Novak. We've got Ray Cairns and Danuka McKenzie on the Rights for Women Convo Couch with Ray guest hosting and chatting to Danuka about their shared experience as debut thriller authors. Danuka's book is out now, The Torrent. It's fantastic. And Ray's is coming up, of course, another fantastic Australian fiction thriller featuring a female protagonist, which we're all about here at Rights for Women. So that'll be coming up at the end of this month. And I've also got Cassie Hamer coming up with an interview with Megan Albany about her debut novel. And I'm going to be speaking very soon to a major Australian publisher of fiction and talking to her about just the whole process about a submission, how that whole process of choosing a book works, all the things to do with publishers taking on books, the current market, what's working now, what's, what isn't, advice to writers, that sort of thing. And I've also got Nicola Marsh coming up on the, the podcast to talk about her productivity because Nicola, if you follow Nicola on Instagram or Facebook, check her out. She is just an absolute dynamo when it comes to uh, productivity. So it'll be great to talk to her. So there's lots of really good stuff coming up on the podcast. And thank you to everybody that's been giving the podcast a shout out, who's been following on Instagram. I hope that everybody who did the February challenge enjoyed that. That was great fun on Instagram and really good to build the rights for women community through social media as well and to meet some new writers out there. Don't forget rights for women does have a Patreon supporters group. And if you go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash rights for women with a four, number four, you can find out more about that. You can, you know, support the podcast for as little as $2, anything up to $5 a month, and you'll get fabulous bonuses for that. The February bonuses have just gone out. And it's a great little thriving community of Patreon supporters there. And shout out to all of you who are supporting the podcast on Patreon because it really helps with getting the hosting done for the podcast, the distributing and the editing services that I use. So thank you very much for that. And check that out. If you follow me on Instagram, follow Rights for Women, you can find the Patreon link in the link tree there in the bio. So a little bit now about my guest today, Eliza Henry-Jones. I've been following Eliza for quite some time and her book In the Quiet is somewhere here on my shelf. 
It's actually one of my favourite Australian novels. It was Eliza's debut novel, In the Quiet. And her second adult novel, Ache, followed not long after. She's got two YA novels, P is for Pearl and How to Grow a Family Tree. And I've been following Eliza now for quite some time on Instagram as well and just absolutely loving her Instagram, her socials there, because she has a fantastic flower farm that she lives on in the Yarra Valley. And she's also a horse rider. Funnily enough, I'm very attracted to riders who are horse riders. So I was really keen to talk to Eliza about the whole creative aspect of writing. And it was a really lovely chat because we really delved into this whole thing about writing as part of your life, not your whole life, but as a creative aspect of your life and how the other creative aspects of your life interlink with it and and how it all crosses over. And of course, we chatted about her books. She has another book coming out later this year with Ultimo Press called Salt and Skin. I can't wait for that. That's an adult fiction title as well. She writes about grief, overcoming grief, finding little moments of joy despite maybe living with trauma. And she's also doing a PhD in trauma studies. So sit back, grab a cuppa. I hope you really enjoy this chat with Eliza Henry-Jones. And here she is. So Eliza, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our chat because there's so many things that pop up on your Instagram feed uh, that really struck me, this whole idea of living a creative life and the different elements that that go into creativity and and how the other aspects of your life actually impact on your writing. So that's definitely something I'm really interested to chat to you about today. Uh, But could we start with you perhaps telling us a little about your writing journey, if you like, and and how you ended up becoming a published author? Absolutely. So I think I'm, I'm Pretty, I think it's pretty standard. A lot of writers out there started writing when they were very young and that was the case for me. And um, I was always really drawn to novel writing. And, oh, there's a cat. oh, hello, cat. He, he, he has to come in the office. If I shut the door on him, he'll just cry until I let him in. I got the dog on the floor. Um, <laughs> I love it. And I think for me, writing novels was a way to explore and understand big issues in my life when I was a teenager. So I think I, I wrote my first sort of novel-length manuscript when I was 14 and I wrote one every year until I was, well, until I got the publishing deal, so 24. So I wrote 10 manuscripts before one got. And I just happened to be when I was quite young, but I did write the 10 manuscripts. And um, the one I wrote before in The Quiet, which was in a lot of ways it dealt with quite similar issues. It was quite a quiet, character-driven story. And that got picked up by an agent. And I thought, this is, it's going to get published. And in the meantime, I'd sort of started working on In the Quiet, which was going to be my debut. And by the time we'd heard back from all the publishers and they'd said things along the lines of, you know, writing's lovely, but there's just no hook. I had finished In the Quiet and that went out. And um, I figured it would get a similar response because it was to me a similar sort of story but that actually went out to 10 publishers and it got five offers which was absolutely wow <laughs> so I I signed a three book deal with Harper Collins and In the Quiet came out and that was just there's something so special about a first book as you would know <laughs> yeah uh, there really is yeah. there is and just having had the physicality of a first book and and I and actually I then 
after, and then I published Ache, which is another um, adult book. And then I moved into Young Adult and published a couple of young adult titles. And the first young adult title was actually one that I had written when I was 16. And I, so it was oh. one of those scripts. And, um, oh, that's of, good. Yeah. You're able to resurrect one of those. That's yeah. excellent. Um, <laughs> And it was actually my year 12 art project. So I bound it and designed the cover and I had this beautiful art teacher, Illy Pelletier, and she took me down to the, I think it's called, oh, it's like a bindery. I think they mostly did academic publications, but in theses and things like that. But they, I think they were a bit tickled by this little little school girl toddling down with her manuscript. And yeah, we ended up binding that and turning it into a little hardcover book, which was, it was originally called Wade's Point. It was all like very black, moody, sort of goth cover and yeah it ended up being called Pierce for Pearl and yeah so that was pretty cool and and I think as well as the more I have written the more I've wanted to experiment and try different things so the more I've gotten into essay writing and I've always done Mm. a bit of story writing but I've gotten really back into short stories lately and just reading as widely as I can and another thing I think that was really useful to me as a writer was not studying writing so I actually did psychology and I thought well you know I'm not a very good writer no one makes a living from their writing no one had ever told me that you know copywriting or anything existed right so, uh, <laughs> or that you could do freelance work or whatever I'd really no one had explained that to me so I was working in the drug and alcohol sector and um, I did grief loss and trauma counseling and for an alcohol and other drugs and that was that was the certain my career was going to be and I thought writing would just be a hobby on the side so it's still pretty surreal to write full-time and I'm really grateful that I have that springboard because psychology and literature sit very hand in hand I think too beautifully so just going back to what you mentioned about in the quiet and that was that was your debut and, and I read that when it first came out, absolutely loved it. It's a book, I have to say, that has stayed with me over the years. And when I lost a a very close friend a few years ago, and that was a a book that I then went back and picked up because you, you really tapped into that whole experience of grief so beautifully. But you mentioned that the book that you had out on submission prior to that was very similar and you thought In the Quiet would maybe get the same response. So what do you think it was about In the Quiet that led to the sort of five publishers wanting it? I think in hindsight, I think the voice was probably stronger and I think this idea of a mother and that connection to her children struck a chord with a lot of people it's something that I think as mothers, we, we're, it's, it's very much part of our, even subconsciousness, I was going to say consciousness, but I think it's in our brain, that, that idea, because ideally you do go before your kids and are they going to, mm. it doesn't matter what they are, are they going to be okay? How are they going to remember all of that sort of thing? And yeah, it's a bit, I did it a bit backwards because I wrote it bef- well before I had a child. <laughs> but- yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, looking back, I've never read that. I've never read it again. I can't read my books once they've been published. No. But little snippets and just the, I know the scenes that I put in and things like that. I think I still relate to them. But yeah, it was interesting because that book, I still get emails about in the quiet from people that have read it. And I've it's far outstrips any sort of correspondence I've had with my other books. Mm. Yeah, it's really struck a chord with people. And the second YA book, Eliza, that you published, was that one of your earlier manuscripts too or that was a new one that you then wrote following your first YA publication? 
That was actually a bit of an accident manuscript. So I was working on another YA and it was dealing with dementia and memory loss and belonging and that sort of thing. And I was finding it so difficult and it was just, sometimes it's a terrible way to describe it, but the phrase that always pops into my head when on those days when writing's really hard is dragging a bag of cats up a hill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty accurate description, I think. <laughs> So it was just every every word I was typing just was just exhausting and it was oh, just the resistance in the work. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to put it aside for two weeks, have a break from it, and I'll decide then if I'm going to come back to it or just put it in the overflowing drawer of the other stories that haven't gotten off the ground. So, um, And as soon as I stopped working on it, I just started typing. And I was pregnant and really grumpy at the time, and I actually wrote the draft that first draft of How to Grow a Family Tree, which is my second YA, in about two weeks. So by the time it was time for me, that limit I'd set myself when I was going to go back to this other manuscript, I'd produced How to Grow a Family Tree. And a lot of the issues related to things that have gone on in my own family. So it was the stuff that I'd spent a a lot of time considering. But yeah, that story, it just poured out. And yeah, it was was a surreal experience, actually, because every other story I've had, it's stewed a lot longer I think and the the process has been a lot longer and I wish I could write all of my first drafts in two weeks wouldn't that be lovely (laughs) but it was obviously just up there you know Mm -hmm. floating around in your subconscious and just blah came out when interesting too when you set yourself a time limit isn't it and a deadline like that and um, sometimes that's what I say to people because I've done a bit of mentoring through Writers Victoria and I think one of the biggest gifts we can give ourselves feeling that the relationship with the work is a bit fraught is actually saying to ourselves we're not allowed to touch it for X amount of time. And um, if it's a story that's still got that flicker of life in it, I think we're we're so desperate to get back into it and we'll find ourselves cataloguing ideas and scenes we're going to add and we're just itching, whereas if it's already sort of gone and it's just never going to be what we need it to be, that too, it'll just disappear. So I think that's, yeah, it's useful. Mm -hmm. I've never gone back to that manuscript I was working on. Oh, really? Okay. Mm -hmm. You just started a new one. Yes. <laughs> mm. And you yes. have a third adult novel coming out later in the year with Ultimo Press, which I'd love to talk to you about a little bit later, Salt and Skin. Yes. Congratulations on that. But so as you say, you, you've written across young adults and adult genres. You've doubled in short stories. You've written articles for a lot of different publications. Do you find that switching it up and working on a whole lot of different styles of of writing actually spurs your creativity on more? Absolutely. And I guess it's related, but I was diagnosed with ADHD last year. Okay. (laughs) Which has given me, I think, a lot of insight into the way I operate. I do jump around between different projects a lot. But I think fundamentally and more probably universally, there is so much value in working across genres because you develop such a solid range of skills I think and you'll come at things from different angles and I think it really helps your problem solving if you're primarily a novelist or that's what really calls to you Mm. and I think it also keeps novel writing something a little bit special because I think fundamentally novel writing is something that you do for the love of it it's got to have that passion and you've got to there's got to be I think it's got to feel special and it's got to be joyful and that's not to say it's not hard work or everything's got to feel easy and glorious and sunshine but you've just got to have that little flicker of enjoyment I think and um, for me I've found that 
having probably too many things on my plate alongside the novel writing has really given me the opportunity to cultivate and preserve that joy. And it feels a bit, I don't know, it always feels special when I sit down to work on a novel. That's a lovely way of looking at it, actually. That that particular activity, sitting down to write your novel, is something that you really then, it's like a little escape from all the other things in your life. Mm. Yeah, rather than thinking of it as just a hard slog, which we often do. <laughs> yeah. And it is. I mean, <laughs> yes. you know, I think I've never written anything that I haven't at some point wanted to put in a garbage can and set on fire. But I think I've still derived so much satisfaction from it. I do, so I do, cool. I do love writing. I um, I do really love writing. But my my process is I write very fast and I throw out a hell of a lot. Okay, that's a lovely segue into my next question, which was going to be about your writing process. So, do you? Well, I guess it's the old question: plotter or pantser? And then, so do you start with a, a kernel of an idea and just write? Do you outline? How does that work for you? I'm very much a pantser. I've been trying to learn a lot more about plotting and um, planning and that sort of thing, not because I think that my creative process is going to fundamentally shift, but because I think it's it's just good to have lots of arrows in your quiver and to try because you never know what's going to work for you until you experiment. I tend to start with normally a very vague idea and I'm very visceral, so it'll be probably a colour or a scene or an idea for a character or just or, or a point of connection between the characters and start with that and I'll the first novel I wrote when I was 14 I've got a folder on a hard drive somewhere and I think there was over 300 false starts with that novel because I just couldn't quite find my way in and some of those false starts are 40,000 words and and I just feel like no this isn't the voice isn't right this isn't where I need it to be and I think that was actually a really good skill to learn but it's okay to just put things aside if they're not working for you. And so even now, like I will start, I normally, I might have a few false starts, but I think I've, I think I can recognize a bit earlier if it's not going to work. But saying that last year, I wrote a 40,000 word manuscript, what 50,000 word manuscript. And I just, the light went off for me. And I'm like, this just isn't, this doesn't feel breathing. It doesn't feel crucial. It doesn't feel urgent to me anymore. And I mm. have just put aside for now. And I don't know whether I'm going to come back to it, but yeah, right. And I think having Henry, who is three now, forced me to relearn the process of writing, which I think is true for a lot of people that become parents, particularly mums. And I used to write in very long, unbroken chunks. And I've had to relearn and develop the skill of being able to dip in and out of my work a lot more efficiently because yeah. you just don't have the time and even if someone else is looking after him for the day, which is wonderful, it's still very time limited. And because Generally, he's looked after at home because my mum's in a little, she's in another little house on our farm, which is really lovely. And he'll come in for a cuddle or he'll want me to read him a book before his nap or whatever, which is just beautiful. But it just means I've got to be a bit more dynamic with being able to pull in and out. But Salt and Skin, which is, as you mentioned, the one that's coming out later this year, I think I've turfed out about 150,000 words from that manuscript all up because like, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty ruthless editor. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever feel any sort of panic or stress about, oh, I can't, I actually can't get rid of this many words or you just, that's just become part of your process now and you know that's, that's what's going to get it to where it needs to be? It's definitely part of my process now and it's, I think I've had to make my peace with the fact that I, ca- I cast my net pretty widely with my books and I, the only way I can work out if certain things are going to work is actually writing them. And, and I, 
I'm pretty basically if it's if I'm finding it boring to edit and I'm you know making excuses not to sit down and do it or there's just scenes where I'm like oh I can't even be bothered reading this then they're gone <laughs> because if they're that hideous to rework then I don't think they're going to be particularly interesting to read yeah yeah so you really use that as a guide for what's going to work for the reader as well and I think there is that a danger is. in that because sometimes I think it's actually a, just an atrocious piece of writing or is it just that I've read it, you know, 500 times? Who knows? Because, you know, they're turfed. You know? Yeah. But, um, <laughs> generally, generally I can gauge what needs to get chucked. <laughs> but I've got a, I've got a really, um, really close writing friend and she plans everything for three months before she writes and her first drafts are pretty they're solid but she just has a fairly light structural and a fairly light copy edit and then you know off to the printing press oh I would love that that would be my dream I've tried to plot I've tried to really do the whole outline thing first but I learn the story I think by writing it and I learn about the characters by by actually just doing the writing I think I though unlike you I've probably resisted that thing of just letting the words flow and if I have to chuck out 100,000, chuck them out because I, I get so, like, panicky about, oh, what if I write it again and it's wrong or whatever. I find it's just a continual learning process. It is. And sometimes I'll write the, I like to know where I'm going at the very end. Are you similar? Yeah, it's funny. I always have the beginning or the initial idea and then I always have the ending or how I want the ending to be. Yes. But everything in the middle is just a complete blur or doesn't exist at all and that's what I have to find out as I'm writing that middle bit is what I struggle with the most and what I tend to do is I'll just write whatever scenes popped into my head and I'm like well, that could be that's a crucial stepping stone to get from where we are to where I need to be and I'll just write that scene and and then I'll just keep doing that until I run out of scenes and then I'll do my best to thread them together and hopefully that's how that makes sense from getting from the start to the end but I think that the one of the downsides of the the level of drafting and redrafting and just turfing things out that I do is that there's all these there'll be little leftovers from previous drafts that throw the whole narrative out that need to be picked up and that can be a bit probably more frustrating for the editors that work on my books (laughs) than for me but yeah that is that's the flip side of that because it's yeah so many different versions of it so do you find you spend a lot more time on the revision than the actual drafting Mm, yes my first draft's mm. pretty quick, but like Salt and Skin, I started writing when Henry was a newborn and it was writing writing down little notes and bits and pieces just in notebooks and things like that. And then it was probably, I didn't actually start writing it until I enrolled in my PhD when he was about oh, six months old, I think. Mm. And I actually started writing it, I had all these notes, but I started writing it at as a verse poem because I think I'd spent so long just thinking about it and normally I think I get an idea and it's bright and it's shiny and I immediately have to start writing and that's got its own advantages and disadvantages but I think having that story inhabit my brain for so long it just it had become this huge big enormous story and I didn't know how to start it it just felt really intimidating so actually starting it as a verse poem which I wrote at 3am it was 4,000 words that was how I found my way into that story and that's every book is different I think and every you never actually learn how to write a book (laughs) yeah no I agree it's been the case for me everyone's been different and and but I love that I love it when you get those it's only happened probably once or twice to me but those bursts of inspiration in the middle of the night and you just 
have to get it down. Because you'll lose it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very hard to drag myself out of bed these days. But but you almost have to. I've tried to write the sleepy notes on the notebook next to it and I can't ever tell, A, what I've written and if I can make out the words, it makes no sense. So you've, kind of, you've got to wake yourself up enough to actually leave something coherent for yourself in the morning. Definitely, I need to get up and move around and all that sort of thing. But you mentioned, Eliza, about doing your PhD, which you're doing on, I was reading on your website and and I wrote it down because it just sounded a really interesting way of putting it. You're studying a PhD on how historic sites of trauma manifest in the environment and through more than human bodies. Could you talk a little bit about? Probably too much, but um, (laughs) fundamentally I'm really fascinated in how we make sense of places where traumatic things have happened and I'm interested in the ways different ways that we view places where human trauma has occurred versus the ways that we view non-human trauma and how we tend to value and create narratives and I guess uh, mark the places that have been suffered by human trauma in a way that we don't with other types of trauma and I wanted to explore that in salt and skin and I hope I've managed it so salt and skin is actually part of my doctoral thesis yeah. the exegetical component which is it's like the critical component that sits alongside it is looking at places and it's looking at it from a hauntological perspective so that's he's a that's a um term coined by Derrida and he was looking at that in terms of not in terms of ghosts themselves but this idea of ghosts as a cultural and social figure and that's exists outside of time and has an urgency and a real focus on social justice so I've drawn on that quite a lot um, and it's sort of very good at talking about my thesis it's like I need to get <laughs> words to kind of get to the point of it but yeah I'm really enjoying it and I'm looking at the role like the role of climate change and landscape and how that's you know impacting our understanding and our ongoing relationship with these sites of trauma and I'm particularly so is that what you mean by non-human trauma the sort of environmental yeah trauma that's occurred within the environment and And, yeah animals and then it also refers to in the manuscript I'm working on there are references to ghosts and selkies and mermaids and it's still it's realist it's not a fantasy or anything but it's these things that are explored in quite a liminal way and how we can use those things in order to explore that intersection of human and more than human and non Sounds really interesting. Yeah. So trauma is something that you've written about in, well, I know definitely in, in The Quiet and Ache. You mentioned when you started writing as a teenager that it was the writing was a way of you working through things. Is that where this interest in writing about trauma has come from for you? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think so. I think we all probably have traumas that we have to deal with in our lives and for me a lot of that happened when I was quite young and it's actually really hard to unpick because I've always really been drawn to trauma and psychology and understanding and those two things have always been very hand in hand to me for me but yeah trauma is something that I am really interested in and I think it's not it's the damage and the impact that it has globally I don't think is given enough attention clinically that it probably should I think and it fascinates me because in literature it's such a common 
thing to be included and I'm interested in how people about it and how I can write about it and what we get when we read about it and just trauma fiction but not just things that are actually classified as trauma fiction other genres completely separate genres that have trauma still present maybe in more of a kind of secondary capacity I don't know it is interesting but I yeah I'm very drawn to trauma as an area of study I just I find it endlessly fascinating yeah, like you say, I think it is in a lot more, probably in every book, really, yes. know, to some extent. We talk about this idea of a character wound and, and looking at what's the thing that, that has formed that character and has made the most impact on them when they were growing up and all that sort of thing. So even if you're writing something that's not necessarily trauma-based, there's going to be yeah. some little element in there, isn't there, in your characters that work around this idea of trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. And Eliza, um, one of the other things I wanted to chat to you about with in regards to your writing and your creativity is your beautiful flower farm where you live. This is sort of completely changing topic, but you've got the most gorgeous photos and everything on Instagram. How did you come to be on a flower farm and how do you feel that lifestyle does influence your creativity? Happened by accident. (laughs) What a lovely accident. It really is. So I always wanted to live somewhere. I always wanted to live on acreage and ideally in the Dandenong Ranges or the Yarra Valley because I spent a lot of time here growing up and it's just, I've just always been very obsessed with it as a place. And and I've had horses since I was 11. I was very lucky. And I always, my, my bucket list was being able to look out my kitchen window at my horses that was that was the thing that I was working towards and yes so we bought this place with my mum in 2015 I say it's eight acres but it's actually more closer to 7.5 but what's half an acre (laughs) and um we didn't even really think about soil or the typography of the land or anything like that and um, we've accidentally one of the most fertile regions in Australia it's got this beautiful red ferrosol soil and it's we're on this north facing block and we're surrounded by flower farms and wineries and orchard farmers. And, and we're also surrounded by all the flower wholesalers, which is absolutely perfect because florists that are coming to the wholesalers, they come and pick up some of our flowers as well. And I've always liked the idea of growing things for food, but I've always, I was quite, I don't know, I wasn't that into it when I was really little. I thought it was boring. You know, I didn't like roses, boring. And I grew things, the house we had before moving here, I grew things on my porch because it was this south-facing, heavily treed little block and there were possums and rats. And so I just had these few little cherished pots on the veranda. And then we moved here and it's, oh, I think we've got... How many? We've got three orchards that are all under netting and then we've got another big citrus orchard with avocados and fajoas and olives and um, this huge veggie patch that was already set up that was all, and it's all irrigated, it's amazing. And um, so that was a pretty steep learning curve. And we started selling our produce at some farmer's markets and bits and pieces and I'd take some of the flowers we already established when we moved here so we had a lot of protea already established and they always just got snapped up. And then I started growing some cosmos and marigold and zinnia in the veggie patch. And I was like, oh, this is fun picking flowers. This is nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's kind of nice bringing them inside, putting them in a vase. And, um, yeah, and then my cousin, after she had a child, she wasn't able to go back to full-time work, part-time work. They, her job, previous job, wanted her back full-time, which she really didn't want to do with her little girl who's close in age to Henry. And so we thought we like flowers. 
okay, let's start a little flower. And yeah, so it's just been this lovely, like it almost feels, feels very similar to, we, we had a shared horse land account when we were 12 and it was very serious business back then. And but really fun. And the flower farm feels like that too. It just feels like fun and a bit cheeky and I don't know. <laughs> it's just this- oh, it's great. I love that story. It just all happened by chance. It's fantastic. Yeah, and yeah, we've run we run workshops in the barn, so we've done a lot of work in our barn, doing a lot of re- we use a lot of reclaimed stuff, and we try and minimise you know, our impact and don't use harmful chemicals or things like that. But yeah, it's just it's been really bizarre. <laughs> Um, and do you think that's had any impact on your writing, sort of being in that environment or like finding that passion for gardening and flowers? Is that, do you think, fed into your writing in any way? Um, I think it has in that it's given me a very different space to inhabit when I'm not writing mm. and being able to, because writing, I'm so well supported in my writing. I've got beautiful friends. I've got a wonderful agent, published editor. It's, it can be really well supported in that way, but it's still such a, lonely thing to do I imagine even if you're collaborating with someone it's still probably lonely because you're physically having to sit down by yourself in your own head to get the words down and for me being able to do the flowers and it's something I can do with Henry and my cousins after we do that we'll be chatting and scheming and coming up with plans and taking photos and running the workshops and it's just this really lovely shared space and I think yeah it's just it complements that the inherent aloneness of writing really beautifully and just being physically just being outside and getting dirty and getting sweaty and (laughs) talking to people yeah it would be a great balance to that just solitary writing at the computer type thing yeah and um even just how clear it is you grow the flowers you pick the flowers you sell the flowers and it's just you've got set tasks and you know what you need to do and you get it done and I think even if you break a novel down into word counts so I'm going to do this chapter I'm going to do x y and z it's such a long project the flowers it's funny because in some ways it's a complete antithesis but in some ways that kind of I don't know there's that inherent optimism in both I think that this story you're going to be still working on it x number of months or years or you're going to be planting these seeds or these trees and they're not going to actually flower the way you need them to for however many seeds mm. And I think that's been across writing and the flower farming and even having the horses and training the horses and thinking that this is something that I'm not going to really see the benefit of for a few more years. It's it's this lovely um, gentle focus on the future, which has been, um, yeah, quite lovely over the last couple of years. <laughs> it really looks like it has been a great time for you over the last few years and your writing must be a great release and I just find when I'm writing you're totally immersed in that particular thing and and you can't really focus on anything else you've got to focus on you and the horse and what's happening and in that way I find it really takes you out of if you are a bit down about your writing or if you've had a plot problem or whatever it's just that total immersion in in the writing and and being out and do you find that as well yeah because otherwise you end up on your butt in the dirt (laughs) that's right (laughs) That, that's you've just you've articulated it perfectly that is exactly how I feel about the horses and I think the gardening and the little micro flower farming and things like that it doesn't give me that break that mental break because it's you're doing things with your hands and and if I'm doing it by myself I've still got all those stories and oh, I need to put the laundry out I need to do this I need to do that you've got 
all those other parts of your life lingering <laughs> while you're doing yeah, that. true. Horse riding, you there's no room for that. It's the only thing that I do that I'm 100% present for because it demands it. And if I'm wandering around on a trail ride with a friend, just loose rain and just babbling away about something, that's a bit different. But if it's just me and the yeah. horse training, I'm entirely thinking about is the horse, is, it, is she flexing? Where's that? How many strides did we get there? Is she forward enough? Am I sitting straight enough? Are my hands in the right spot? Are these muscles activated? Should we turn here or, you know, should I do a tight circle here? She warmed up enough. Should I give her a break? It's this constant just thinking, thinking. Yeah, I love it. It's, it's really, although I have, because of my horse that I ride primarily, I, I brought her as a two-year-old and then I sold her as a six-year-old and then I brought it back as a five-year-old, uh, a 10-year-old and she's now 17. So I just, I know her so well. And oh, that's um, lovely. Yeah. And she's, she can be a little bit of a, a little bit of a goblin, but mostly we've just worked things out and everything's easy and it's lovely. And I've brought her, I've got a, I've brought a foal. He's still at the breeder. He hasn't been weaned yet. And I'm just thinking, oh, I'm going to have to go through all of that again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the good thing is with a foal, isn't it, that you can train it the way you want to. It hasn't been had any, you know, training that you wouldn't agree with or whatever. And, and you can really put your effort and time into that particular foal, can't you? Absolutely. I'm pretty excited. <laughs> yeah. And are you competing still on your older horse? I was hoping to do a bit more competing on her, but she's got some things wrong with her physically. And she's some days she's brilliant. And then other days she struggles with the work. So I've just taken the pressure off her and we're doing a little bit of everything, but yeah, it's it's a shame because I was really hoping to get back out there with her, but it's just joys mm. are not meant to be. Yeah, got the new one to to bring up. Even though that'll take a little while. Yes, <laughs> long term. Long, long, um, long. Term. Just <laughs> a couple of things, Eliza, that we touched on earlier that I just wanted to go back to. You mentioned being diagnosed last year with ADHD. How do you feel that's impacted on your writing? I. I think it's impacted on my writing in that I, I'm stopped coming down super hard on myself when I find things difficult. And I recognize that things that you wouldn't even think of as being related to ADHD, like being able to hyper focus on a story for, because I spoke earlier about working in those long stretches. And to elaborate on that, that for me would be sitting for nine hours without moving and just writing and not hearing. Wow standing next to me saying hello so just being so immersed in it and recognizing that oh that's actually how you know that's not that's an ADHD thing and and I think it's given me permission to find new ways of working with my brain and rather than just trying to force my way through things that I find hard because I feel like mm. I should do them easily everyone else does them easily it's been really good and and also recognizing when I actually need to keep myself on track and because I do tend to take on too much so you know I've got the flower farm I do some freelancing I'm teaching at two unis this semester. I'm full-time PhD and then I've got the novels and the horses and Henry. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's do, a lot. Um, I do tend to take on a little bit too much, but it's also for me, I, I need to actually have that bouncing around a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. And the medication, I can't speak for anyone else, but the medication has been really helpful for me, just getting through the things that I find I have found excruciatingly hard in the past you know, just a little bit hard so that's nice <laughs> yeah oh that's good that's much better and and the other thing I wanted to ask you about was you mentioned obviously Henry's three there's that's 
time as well that you're devoting to him and spending time with him and the whole thing with motherhood. But do you feel that motherhood has impacted your writing in any other way other than having to divide your time, maybe in terms of the things you write about or the way that you feel about what you're writing? It absolutely has. I'm just trying to think how I'd articulate how. I think it, it obviously it fundamentally changes you. It changes your outlook on everything, I think, and it mm. you almost rebuild who you are after you have a child. It doesn't mean that you change, but it just means I think everything that you do outside of it and how you think about things, it's almost got to be a bit of a more conscious choice. I think it's, I think it's forced me to be maybe a bit more nuanced in how I approach things and a bit less rigid maybe about things when I'm writing. I don't know. It's a really good question. I'm going to be mulling on that for a while. <laughs> if you think of anything else before we finish chatting, we can. Let's get on to having a quick chat about salt and skin. We've touched on it a little bit, but what's it about? When's it out? And and how did that whole contract with Ultimo come about for you? So salt and skin is about a mother and her two teenage children, and they've been on a very hideously drought-affected farm in Australia, and the husband and you know the father of the children he has passed away and the mother moves her and her children to this little very wild rugged collection of islands which is fictional off the north coast of Scotland and it's based very closely on Orkney but I didn't want to set it actually on Orkney because I've taken some many and it draws on the 17th century witch trials that happened in the Kirk St Magnus on the Orkney Islands and um, when I visited there in 2017 there's this dungeon where the women were held and it was overwhelmingly women there were some men Mm. and there's the hangman's ladder that these women climbed that after they were condemned and executed it was the mat the manacles that they wore and the dock where they stood during their trial and it just really hit me. And then just this idea of the church, and this goes back to my PhD research, but the idea of this church, you know, these women absolutely terrified and being, you know, interrogated, which is a synonym for torture, and being held in this dungeon. And meanwhile, worship services are happening and, you know, weddings Uh, and Christmas, baptism, all that sort of thing. So just that. There's so much to mine there, isn't there, in terms of of the book and a story and women's lives. Um, basically the mother she's a photographer and it's about her balancing that that idea of the artist alongside this idea of being a mother and what that actually means and it's about how they engage with this landscape that they thought would be a reprieve from climate change but it's actually just been impacted in a you know different but very similarly vitriolic way and and just the way that history's layered and it's probably I think it's probably the book I'm most proud of and I don't think I've ever worked harder on a book than I have worked on or really challenged me and I'm doing the copy edits on it at the moment and but yeah I'm really proud of it and I'm really excited by it and yeah. Is it your first book that's set outside Australia? I haven't read your YA ones so I'm not sure. Yes this is my first one that's set outside of Australia. Oh that's exciting. Yeah Mm. and I'm really working with Alex Craig at Ultimo and she is wonderful so it's just yeah very exciting. Yeah, Ultimo are putting some fantastic titles out. I'm every I keep getting press releases about the yes. next book that's coming out. And I just spoke to Shankari John a couple of weeks ago and her books with Ultimo, of course. And so how did that particular contract come about for you? Just I think that the book being really up 
Alex's Alley. I think it's touched on quite a few things that she has, she's interested in and has published in the past. And yeah, it's, I think it's a good fit. And I'm, I'm really, I, I feel really happy to have this. I think it's found a really good home with Ultimo. And I've been absolutely not flat with how well the books have been doing that Ultimo's been putting out and how their mm. list has been growing. And yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's very exciting. Exciting to be with a fellow new publisher, isn't it? Your next book. And is that out? It is out in August. I had okay. to think about that. <laughs> Definitely one to watch out for. Before we finish up with this this part of the interview, um, this is going into the podcast series as a heart of writing episode because I think there's so many things we've touched in on that are around this whole idea of, of the heart of writing. And I always like to end these interviews by asking, what do you feel is at the heart of your writing? Being able to explore something, hitting on something that resonates with other people, I think, that stays with them. I think that is at the heart of writing for me as a published author. And I think in terms of, you know, just writing for myself, it's just the thrill of it and the way it can help you understand things. So it's not a very exciting answer, but that's probably my No, no. Three little things that are nestled there. I, I think they, they all fit really nicely together too. Thank you so much, Eliza. I am going to be hopefully chatting to you in a minute about our four curly questions for the Patreon supporters, but this is the end of, of this interview. So people can look out for Salt and Skin in August coming out. Where can they follow you on Instagram? Because I really urge everybody to follow your Instagram and anywhere else on social media that they can find you. Oh, thank you. I'm just Eliza Henry Jones on Instagram and I think I'm E Henry Jones on Twitter. But yeah, there's probably the places where I'm hanging out the most. Yeah, I love looking at all your pics of your flowers and, and the horse oh, riding and everything. <laughs> and little Henry with his Shetland, oh, absolutely gorgeous. Thanks so much, Eliza. Thank um, you so much for having me. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>